Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uncorked Corner podcast. Today, Nick and I are excited to welcome Terry Peterson from the Hop Yard, main base grower and processor for hops used by New England's many craft brewers. With that said, Terry, can you give us a bit about, about your background on who you are and how you got started in the industry? Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, so I'm Terry Peterson. I'm the sales manager for the Hop Yard, like you said. Um, we're about 14 acres of hops in the ground and we distribute our hops and work with a bunch of breweries all over the New England area. Um, I started in beer uh, close to a decade ago. Um, I was one of the opening staff at Liquid Riot in Portland where I brewed, uh, distilled, bar managed distribution, did a little bit of everything for, for them with my five plus years uh, and then transitioned into ingredients. Um, it was a great transition. I already had a lot of friends in the industry and worked with a lot of breweries all over the New England area, just via, you know, brewing collabs, uh, events, you know, conferences, whatever it may be. Um, so it was nice. And it was kind of just like, you got to brew some beer and now it's, Hey, do you want to buy some of my hops? So it's a pretty good transition. It was great. And what's cool about that too, is the hops being one of the main ingredients to a lot of these beers. It's, uh, something that you get to work with probably a variety of breweries on all the local ones and you get to see how someone takes your raw ingredients and then turns it into you know a variety of different beers and i'm sure you know they at once they take that and get to put into their beers they can change it up and really showcase the hops a lot um for the actual hops to kind of get into talking about that a little bit uh how many varieties of hops do you guys grow on the farm right now yeah, so uh, we grow five varieties. We grow Cascade, Comet, Nugget, Centennial, and Triumph. Uh, Triumph's actually a new variety for us this year. It's the first time we'll be harvesting that. Uh, it's a newer USDA variety. So everything that we grow on our farm are public varieties. They're bred and just, you know, bred and developed uh, via the USDA in conjunction with some universities out in the Pacific Northwest. Um, that means anyone can grow them. Anyone can sell them. You don't need a licensing agreement to grow them. You don't have to pay royalties per pound or per field or whatever it may be, um, like you would on some proprietary varieties. So proprietary, meaning they're, they, the breeder and owner is a large hop farm. And they spent probably close to a decade and a few million dollars developing these varieties uh, to go to market and they control them. And that's rightfully so, they did the work. Um, for us, we're just too small. Uh, and being where we are geographically, it's, um, we're not a, I guess, a more recent traditional growing region. If you go back to the 1800s, Maine was actually the second biggest hop producer next to New York at number one until about the 1860s. So it's kind of kind of cool that it's coming back here. Um, but for us at our scale, it's not really possible for us to grow proprietary varieties. So we stick to USDA. So we grow those five. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Cascade, have heard of Nugget, have uh, heard of Centennial, those are kind of some classic ones. Comet, also an older one, but uh, kind of faded and is kind of making a, a comeback now. Brewers are getting more excited about that variety. It's uh, it's it's really grapefruity and bright, has a, a really, really bright aroma, uh, and it plays well with a lot of a lot of other hops. So one thing you mentioned there too is uh, on the geography and how we're located, you're located up here in Maine. Uh, when it comes to geography, growing these hops that are kind of a similar variety, people can grow those, I imagine, all over the country. How yeah, does your version of, let's say, a Cascade, for example, differ from a Cascade that's grown, you know, somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world? Because 
you know, we've talked to a lot of people from wine farms and different uh, yeah. things like that. And obviously region and the soil and everything can affect the taste of the grapes <clears throat> huge amounts. So how do you exactly. see that all at the hops? Yeah. Yep. Same thing. We, we, well, we call it terroir. Um, uh, it's a term used a lot in the wine industry as well. Uh, and like you said, ge geographic, your position in the, in the, in the world, in the country, um, your, your climate, your soil composition, your, your water table height, your, all these different things make, make, uh, make a difference. And especially, I mean, Cascade is probably one of the widest grown varieties. It was the most acreage in the country or in the world, excuse me, until a year or two ago when Citra overtook it. Fun fact. But uh, Cascade, one of the widest grown varieties in the world. And Cascade in the Pacific Northwest to Cascade here in Maine, there's actually Cascade grown in New Zealand, which is really unique. Um, vastly different, vastly different. Um, our Cascade, we get like nice light notes of peach and, you know, I, I get like orange or, or like candied orange peel as opposed to kind of your classic grapefruit pine uh, quality to it. Like Pacific Northwest, you get a little bit more of that grapefruit, a little bit drier. Um, here I get a lot of like sweet candies, peaches, um, some Earl Grey kind of green tea notes a little bit as well. So yeah, it's definitely different. Um, New Zealand Cascade is kind of like squirt soda. It's like really like tart, citrusy, lemon lime thing. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're distinctly different. Um, and one of the fun events we do on the farm, except for, for last year with COVID, is we invite a bunch of brewers to our barn and we just rub hops. We call it Hoppy Hangout. And a bunch of local brewers show up and everyone brings beer and we order a bunch of pizzas and rub hops and hang out and enjoy the community. And one of the fun things that's really interesting to do is to bring what we call cuts, which are uh, whole leaf sections of bales of hops. So right after they're harvested, they're dried, we take a section of those and we can rub them for sensory purposes. So we'll get a cascade from uh, Oregon, a cascade from Washington, a cascade from Michigan, a cascade from Maine, and a cascade from New Zealand. And it's really cool to see uh, the nuances across those in one setting. And you can really, you can really dial in and see the individual differences just from those different regions. It's the same exact hop genetically. Uh, I mean, maybe slightly different with genetic drift over time and stuff if you really want to get into it. But they're the same variety. Um, and and it's really interesting how different they can be in those different regions. So when it comes to the actual growing season, how does that work with hops? How long is it? When do you plant initially? And mm -hmm. kind of when do you expect to be harvesting mm -hmm. on a normal year? Yeah, the, honestly, the harvest windows are, are pretty dang similar. Um, for us, and the, 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 I guess it's one of the drawbacks to our region is that our season starts later. And that's just the nature of our winters. Um, if climate change keeps doing what it's doing, that might change. Uh, but for right now, we start three, four, five weeks later, typically, um, on our hops actually shooting through the ground um, than the West Coast. So that puts us behind on training, not behind, it's all, it's all relative, but comparatively to the West Coast uh, on training the hops, which is where we actually wind the hops around the string. Um, and so our plants are typically a little bit smaller um, we got to work a little bit harder for that harvest and push those plants a little harder. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the main difference would be season length at the beginning of the season. Um, we get a little bit colder over the winter, not a huge uh, impact. Those hops are dormant during that time. Um, and as they're dormant through the season, that's kind of a, like a biological reset for them. It gets them ready 
pulls nutrients back in from the hops that are left above ground after cutting uh, and just gets ready for that next season of growth. Um, yeah, I guess seasonally, that's kind of the, the main difference for us is season length. We typically harvest or, or hop farmers in general, I guess hop season, um, last week of August, essentially, somewhere in there, uh, the 24th, 26th, 27th. Centennial is typically the first hop harvested. Um, across many farms, I've yet to see one really harvest earlier than Centennial. Um, and then it works through varieties. Every variety has its own what we call picking window. And uh, it's pretty specific. Um, the latest variety for, again, kind of uh, those, those uh, what's, what's the, uh, for, uh, uh, the, like a, oh, whatever, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, just a little fun fact, Idaho 7 is the latest variety uh, typically harvested. And they're gonna harvest that in October in some places. So harvest will work through the beginning of September, end of August, all the way through September, all the way until kind of October. And it's obvious that you're very passionate about what you do. And we love to see that. And it's, it's so fun to learn about new things. And Nick and I have seen many brewers on the podcast. We've learned a lot about what day-to-day -day life is like in breweries, but for you, it's obviously much more niche. It's much more different. <clears throat> so this time of year where it is a busy season are what does your day-to-day -day look like you must be very all-consumed but give us a little bit of insight as to as to what the day-to-day -day looks like at a hop farm yeah I'm, I'm planning for harvest right now so um doing the sale side of things i'm not on the farm day-to-day -day right now i'm i'll go out a couple times a week check on the fields kind of get a look on everything once the cones start to get developed that's when th there's a lot more time spent on the farm right now the plants are growing vertically they're, they're, they're getting as big as they can get before they start really developing the cones. Um, so right now it's kind of, it's kind of management. It's kind of maintenance at this point in the season for another four or five weeks or so. And then it's, and then it's really go time to start really planning as far as exactly when those harvest dates are going to fall, um, how the cones are looking. We're taking moisture readings on the cones themselves throughout this, throughout the end of the season as they're developed. Um, we wait for them to get to a specific moisture content, um, which kind of is indicative of when we'll harvest it. So we're monitoring that along with sensory daily, essentially, as we get really close to that harvest time. So right now I'm, I'm doing my outreach. I'm going to brewers. I'm saying, hey, you're up for another wet hot beer this year. You want to come to the farm? Do you want to brew the same beer? Do you want to change it up this year? And really doing a lot of logistics. Last year we had 53 breweries come to the farm. Um, it was a very busy season and a very interesting season because we couldn't overlap a lot of people mid COVID. So a traditional harvest season is maybe there's three or four breweries at the farm at the same time. And it's fun. It's communal. We all walk the fields. We rub some hops right off the, off the plants. And then, uh, you know, they pick up their hops, they go brew some beer the same day. Um, and that's the fun part of what, what hop season. And so we kind of lost that communal aspect last year. It's very, uh, we had, everyone had their little half hour window and you can only, the only one brewery at a time. And we were trying to be safe, keep our staff safe, keep ourselves safe and their staff as well. Um, but it's, it feels good that we'll be able to just kind of bring back the fun communal side of the farm for harvest this year. And you service brewers all over the New England area. So what size brewer are you typically working with? Is it really a big mix of micro and larger? It yeah, it is. I mean, we've yet to, you know, ship hops to AB. We're not there. We're not there. That probably won't happen. 
but from you know your nanos your one barreled hat one and a half three barrel guys up to allagash um as probably one of the bigger breweries the biggest brewery we've we've really worked with um actually should probably open this allagash 16 counties here um they're a big supporter of us and main agriculture in general um they use our nugget in this beer um so so yeah it is a good it is a good mix um and then throughout the year as well, I mean, we've shipped, we've shipped hops all over the New England area in pellet form um, on the fresh hops. Uh, it's kind of like this pilgrimage where the brewers all come to the farm. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to see all the faces you haven't seen in maybe a year or, or, you know, and since last harvest, those guys you don't get to see too often from a few states away. And so it's a lot of fun. So another thing you mentioned a little bit back is the wet hop season so from what we've talked to some brewers that seems like it can be a pretty hectic time where you have a very very short window where they mm -hmm. can get those hops and then get them to the brewery to make some beer with so how does that work with working with a bunch of different breweries and trying to get that coordinated yeah it's a it's it's a logistical feat it is man like we have like i said about 50 breweries the last couple of years i expect i expect more this year um so that's 50 pickups, that's 50 brew days, that's 50 varietal numbers, that's 50 different individual weights. Maybe there's pellets involved as well because they're going to dry hop their wet hop beer. It's 50 different pickup times and different, you know, so it is, it's a lot of logistics. It's a lot of planning. Brewers have been really great about understanding that it, it is just agriculture. And I might tell you it's going to be September 9th when we're going to harvest those. But on September 5th, I might call you and say, hey, we want to let them hang a day or two longer. And that's just the plants tell us when they're ready. Like I said, when we have that specific uh, uh, hydration, uh, water composition, and, and sensory really is the deciding factor on when we'll harvest. And that could come down, they're changing day to day at the end of harvest. So every day those hops are gonna be slightly different. The moisture content will be slightly different. So while we can kind of plot, you know, a, a, a guess, it's sort of like, oh, it wasn't a little bit extra warm this day. So they're a little bit drier and maybe we're going to push a day early or we got a good amount of rain and the, the moisture content's holding and we're going to push a day or two back. So it really is the plants telling us when they're ready. Um, and so it can be stressful on brewers too, because they're like, oh, I had a brew day plan today and I got something else planned for tomorrow. And now I got to go, I got to go switch this up. I got to go brew this beer tomorrow. I got to brew this beer. So, but Luckily, we've been super lucky with all the brewers being super understanding and willing to be flexible. Um, I don't think I've had anyone, you know, due to scheduling issues with Harvest say, ah, we're not going to do it. So it's been, we've been pretty lucky with that. Now, obviously being in agriculture, kind of at the mercy of nature here. So on times like now, at least to, you know, us that aren't in the industry, it seems like there's a ton, a ton of rain. Do you find that kind of, it can accelerate the speed that the ops will become ready to harvest um, or, you know, even the opposite, make it, like you said, hold moisture. And yeah, we're still, later. we're still far enough away that it's really not an issue. Um, right now, just keep giving us rain really for us. I mean, we're, Maine's technically in a drought, so any, any rain is a good thing for us farmers. Um, as it gets closer to harvest, like if say we're going to harvest on a Friday and Thursday, it pours all day long. That could be an issue for harvest on Friday. Um, for a few reasons, one being mud in a tractor. Um, 
and we don't feel like getting tractor stuck in fields with people on harvest equipment 20 feet in the air. Um, two being and being moisture content and the, the hops themselves being wet. So as they go through the picking process, if the hops are wet, they're very heavy and the leaves are wet, the leaves actually get through the process when they're not supposed to, they're supposed to be separated. And if the leaves hold on to a lot of, if the leaves are physically wet, um, we, we have really, we have a, a lot of trouble actually separating them in our picker. So it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of extra people on cleaning. It just, the hops themselves, we don't want them to be wet going into a bag to sit for a few hours before brew day. So the rain day of harvest or morning of or night before can, can affect it. Uh, to get back into some of the hop varieties to, for us that don't really know necessarily what hops go into every beer, can you sure. give us a little bit of a crash course on the hop varieties that you have, the flavors that each of them, yeah, uh, and the you know notes, the scent notes, and everything that they might provide to the beers? Yeah, no problem. Um, so a lot, obviously, in today's market, a lot of beers are hop forward. A lot of beers want those bright, juicy, citrusy, tropical flavors and aromas. Um, we grow, like I said, USDA variety, so. Stuff like Cascade and Centennial, while they're maybe, they feel a little bit old school, uh, they can still bring a lot of fantastic uh, flavors, especially the ones that come from our farm. They are unique. I mean, our, our Centennial kicks off huge lemon oil, almost like lemon, lemon thyme, like really, really bright, like bright tart citrus, pure lemon. Um, while our Cascade has notes of peach and orange peel and candy, almost subtle strawberry note. Same thing in our nugget. We get a lot of, uh, a lot of sweet fruits, berries and, and, uh, and things out of our nugget, which is probably more considered kind of an old school bittering hop, uh, higher alpha, which if you guys are familiar with alpha, alpha acids are what actually isomerize during the brewing process and create bitterness. So that balance and that bitterness you get in beers is from hop oils, um, called alpha acids. And Nugget are higher than Cascade, a little higher than Centennial, not much higher, but uh, in that 12 to 13% range. Um, so they're kind of considered more of an old school bittering hop, but ours are amazing. And we see people dry hop with them all the time. Foulmouth Brewing does a, does a great kind of IPA called Grolix with our, with our Nugget and Cascade that is dry hopped with both of those that is beautiful and citrusy and bright. Um, so that's kind of, those aromas and flavors are, are due to the hop oils uh, and those actually pop, pass through the uh, the brewing process, whether it's in the boil um, where you're actually getting that isomerization, which that actually happens at high temperature, um, or in the dry hop where you're getting, nowadays everyone talks about biotransformation and what that does when the yeast interacts with the hop oils and uh, and the flavor and aroma compounds in hops are, are, are brought through the fermentation process and, and they kind of change slightly or bring out different compounds and that's a whole that I could talk for an hour on on that stuff I'm sure a lot of guys did too but um yeah so that's kind of the gist of of what hops are doing for beer as well as you know shelf stability and stuff like that they're antimicrobial by nature um but we're pretty good at sanitation these days at least a lot of breweries are and when you're taking that and you're gonna either wet hop that or dry hop that uh or add it in different you know, points of the brewing process, how does that affect how much of that flavor comes through in the yeah. actual 
Um, wet hops are unique. So wet hops uh, are, they are wet because they're not dry, right? So um, there is a lot of moisture in the, in the hop cones themselves. So actually you can kind of see it on my hat. The cones, they kind of look like this. They, they, sure you guys have seen them, but they, uh, they have moisture in them. And the reason we wait for that moisture content to hit the window we want is because the moisture actually is converted into oil production as the plant ripens and gets ready to finish its season. So if we were to harvest it at too high of a moisture content, we wouldn't have as much of that uh, oil and by turn aroma and flavor developed yet. So that's why we maybe push it a day or two. We really wanna push on those hops to really, really become really bright and just full of oils. Um, typically we see pretty high oil content on our hops. Um, like for their style or for their variety, um, which translates to a lot of aroma and a lot of transferable flavors and aroma. Um, so like I said, the boil, you're going to get less transferable aroma and flavor um, with bitterness pickup. So you're actually going to isomerize those alpha acids and create bitterness in your beer. Um, how much you use depends on the beer itself. Uh, and that's just going to help balance your sweetness from, from your malts. Uh, in the whirlpool, which is still considered hot side, uh, but not necessarily in the boil itself. The beer has come down from a boil. A lot of, a lot of breweries nowadays, I call it the whirlpool. People call it whatever, but basically they, they, they send their wort post boil through their heat exchanger or in some capacity and cool the wort down below 180 degrees. That's kind of the going theory. And that is, the isomerization temperature above 180 degrees. So there's essentially the theory is no, no ISO. So you don't get any bitterness pickup even in Whirlpool. And that's just going to be a huge aroma addition because you're activating those oils. You're absorbing them into solution at a little bit of a heat, at a little bit of heat. So you're really, really getting really good utilization on those oils uh, with, with the theory of no, no bitterness pickup. So that's still considered hot side. Um, cold side will be, will be post knockout as they call it through the, through the hate exchanger and into your fermenter. And there's every theory in the book as to when's the best time to add hops in, during fermentation or post fermentation, or I've had, I know breweries that <clears throat> transfer right out of heat exchanger onto hops in the fermenter. I know a breweries, uh, fermenting day one, day two, day three, adding dry hops. So there's a, Every brewery has their own theory and their own process. And that's kind of the beauty of beer. Um, but the general idea of dry hopping is mostly aroma based. As you start talking about, you know, biotransformation and that stuff, uh, aroma flavor, that's kind of the big addition. And the guys that say, Oh, we, we dry hop this at four pounds a barrel or three pounds a barrel. Um, a barrel is 31 gallons. So do the math and talk about how many pounds of hops you're using. But, uh, that's a lot of the aroma and the flavor and a lot of these new kind of styles of IPAs and hop forward beers that they're, they're heavily pushed with, with, with whirlpool additions uh, and then, and then your dry hop. There's obviously so much information to learn about hops and about brewing and about everything in the space. For those who are interested in learning more about hops, how they're grown, the different varieties, where is the best place for them to do that? Because unlike wine, where I've seen a lot on like wine growing and kind of all uh -huh. of these other home brewing methods and things like that, I haven't seen much on hops. 
there's books out there. I mean, before I started brewing, I was reading a lot and homebrewing. Uh, there's a great hop books out there. If you're just really interested, there's, there's amazing books on hops to the non uh, brewer or someone that's maybe not very into homebrewing or beer itself. They may be a little bit dry. Um, you know, like if you want to learn, if you really want to dive into hop oil composition and what they do at different temperatures and how they isomerize differently and carry through the process. Sure. Go read some amazing book. But the brewer, a lot of the, the Brewers Publication, Brewers Association publications are really good. Um, there's a new hop called the new, or a new book called the, I want to say it's called the New Brewer. Don't quote me on that. I think that's a magazine. Oh, what's it called? I can't remember the exact name of the book. I think it's, or no, the new IPA. Maybe it's the new IPA. Uh, I read it recently. Couldn't remember. Can't remember the name. We'll but go with that. New IPA. <laughs> I think it's the, the new IPA brewer or the new IPA. Something about kind of this new style that's been developed over the last few years and kind of process and how that's all done um but yeah i mean do stuff like this listen to podcasts though know, there's plenty of information out there um if you are a brewer and you want more information um from a from a scientific standpoint or um high level data standpoint uh the mbaa is a great resource for you know professional brewers um there's chapters all over the country you know part of the new england chapter here and um, that's not just going to cover hops, but there will be good information on hops, you know, kind of throughout their, their, their universe, but, um, they cover everything from a, from a, the master brewers association of America, from a scientific standpoint, they cover just about everything brewing related. Um, yeah, go to, I mean, come to your local farm, contact your local home, your, your local, uh, brewer and, you know, say, Hey. I have an interest in these hops, you know, do you use them and how, why do you use them and how do you use them? I don't know. Chat with your tasting room employees and people that are pouring you beer and pick their brain. You know, I, I bother enough brewers and pestered them for information until it all made sense, I guess. And then I started doing it professionally. So <laughs> the best learning from other people and from Island dog to Orono and liquid riot, we've had quite a few of the breweries work with you on our podcast. Oh, cool. Awesome. Um, so as you can imagine, Nick and I love beer. We've tried a whole bunch of different ones. I'm mm -hmm. sure we've tried many with your hops. Probably. So, yeah. <laughs> of the many that do use your hops, are there any favorites that you've had that really stood out to you? Um, it's 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 tough with with you getting beers consistently throughout the year. Uh, and that's just because of our scale. There's nothing we can do about it. We're a small local farm. And I couldn't say, you know, go get this IPA anytime you want because they are kind of a little bit special, a little bit specific. Um, Allagash 16 County is great. Um, Oxbow makes a beer called Northern Lager with ours. That is one of the most drinkable beers around, I think. Um, I mentioned Grawlix from Foulmouth. Uh, Liquid Riot's always sprinkling some hops in here and there, making beers. Um, any of the wet hot beers every season, I try to get as many uh, kind of checked off the list every year as I can. Some of them are out of our out of our reach with distribution here, but um, those are always a really unique experience to really taste the flavors once a year, specifically from our farm. And that's that's such a such a cool part of the wet hop process. Um, Austin Street made a beer called Original Maine um, a few times this year that has our hops in it that I think is really fantastic. It's a light pale ale and I think it's yeah, really fantastic. That beer really showcases what our Cascade can do um, 
and, and what kind of flavors it can bring to like a hop forward light beer. And it's, it's, it was fantastic. Really happy with that one. Do you find it, uh, helps a lot to have so many great breweries so close to your farm? Uh, How can you Maine, not? It's, <laughs> Maine is wonderful. When I moved up there from Boston, it's just the amount of breweries everywhere you turn yeah. is one and there, I haven't been to one that haven't like yet. I've never had a beer at any of them. They're, oh, it's a terrible beer. They all yeah, do such a great job. We're so lucky. Own. Yeah, we're yeah. so lucky with that. When they, when those guys, our ownership and the guys that own the farm and they were getting together and saying, you know, let's, let's open a hop farm. It was 2011. So just kind of the, the, the infancy of kind of craft beer or even in Maine, maybe nationwide too. But uh, I guess from a, from a, the way it exploded from 2013 on, um, you know, when they started, it was like, yeah, this might be, this might be all right. And I think there was maybe 20 breweries in the state when they opened and now there's about 150. So uh, rapid, rapid expansion in the, in the, in the industry here in Maine and all over New England. I mean, but Maine specifically with as many beers or many, as many breweries as we have just here in the state. I mean, yeah, we couldn't even supply all of them if we, if we tried to you know, at our scale. And we are, I mean, we are scaling. We planted two acres last year. We have another couple acres going in and stuff, but it takes time. Do you time. have any styles of beer that you find to be the ones you gravitate towards the most? What's always in your fridge at home? What's like your number yeah. one that you always have there? Um, I mean, I end up drinking a lot of IPAs because I am a hop vendor. So between the hop yard and uh, Crosby hops is another hop farm that I represent. It's uh we supply hops and really great hops that go into large production batches and stuff like that. So I typically, you know, tend to drink a lot of IPAs. Um, if I had my druthers, I'd drink, you know, delicious lagers all the time. Because uh, I love those kind of beers. I've been drinking a lot of sh uh, Schilling lagers out of New Hampshire. Um, their lagers are phenomenal. Land beer. Check them out. I haven't heard of them before. Schilling in Littleton, Littleton, New Hampshire, up close to the border of Vermont, um, through the, you kind of go through the Kankamangus and all those beautiful little uh, mountainside roads and towns, and then get up to Littleton. It's a little town. It's their tasting rooms, pretty impressive. Their beers are are phenomenal. Um, so we do a lot of work with those guys. Um, yeah, I, sour beer and wild beer. That was like why I got into beer uh, way back in the day was spontaneous fermentation and blending barrels and using fruits and microbes and different things. And um, so I typically at any given time have a few random bottles of really nice blended sour beer in my fridge. Um, yeah, I drank a Dre Fontaine Goose the other night with a friend and then an Allagash and a Cascade out of Oregon on the other side of the country. And so, yeah, there's always some of those in there too. That's uh, sour beers. That's Bianca. Oh yeah. Her, uh... Number one. Although I've started to like a lot more things. <laughs> Nick, Nick your, bullies me into trying me bit. everything. So <laughs> mm -hmm. well, I can't fault you for liking sour beers. That's uh especially at this time of year. They're just, you know, they're fun to drink when it's it's hot and it's you know, yeah. They feel very summery a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very, very complex and refreshing and dry. Perfect for the heat. Yeah. So having worked on the, on the other side of things, what do you like about working with the hops as opposed to working in the brewery itself? Yeah, um, working in a brewery is great. I mean, you get to make beer all day and, and hang with some good friends that you work with and it's just, it's great. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, 
for for me when you start making the same beer a lot and you get kind of roped into a production schedule and just the nature of of trying to sell beer in today's market is you have to be competitive and you have to put out these beers uh because there is so much saturation in the market that if you find something that works and you're competitive with it and it's selling you keep making it and so kind of getting tied into that got not frustrating but just you know all right, cool. This is fine. It is what it is. And then, um, the hop world is, is, is different. And I've always wanted to work with my hands on on a farm and do stuff like that. And so working for a farm is, is a unique thing and, uh, being a part of the seasonality of it where, you know, we're looking forward towards harvest here in seven, eight weeks, which is crazy to think about. Uh, and then it's, all right, clean the fields up, put her away for the season and then start planning for the next year. And it's just, it really is like year to year, but it, it, the seasonality of it makes it fun because you have different projects you're working on throughout the year. And maybe right now we're in maintenance phase, but then in seven or eight weeks, we're going to be at harvest. And then we're going to be at cleanup and fixing trellises and fixing top wires. And then maybe planting new fields or putting up a new trellis. And then we're skiing over the winter sometimes. And then maybe we're going into spring where it's, it's sprouting season and training season. So there's always a new project. There's always something new and fun to do. Um, I get to travel a lot and talk with a bunch of people that I'm friends with and make amazing beer all over the, all over the country in the New England area. So that's a big perk too. I mean, I'll spend time in Oregon a couple of times uh, after harvest. I'll spend time in Colorado for CBC in September. Um, I'll be kind of all over the place as we, as traveling starts to feel normal again, but uh yeah, I get to hang out with my friends' breweries all day. It's great. That's a great perk. <laughs> so for everyone who is listening, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share that we haven't covered yet? Hmm. I guess it's hard to really describe the picking process and stuff, but it is pretty interesting um, and how the plants grow agronomically. So the plants grow 20 feet, almost 20 feet tall. Um, our trellises are these massive poles with, with cables that run directionally across the top of the poles. And every year, the big push at the beginning of the season is before the hops sprout is weed control and grass control. We, uh, and then after that is stringing, which is where we actually drive through each individual row and hang a string with a little knot from what we call the top wire, which is the top cable that runs across the field over the hops. So every plant gets two strings and we have about 13,000, 14,000 plants. So a lot of strings to be tied 20 feet in the air with a little, little knot by hand. So we have uh, a tractor that drives with a kind of like a big platform um, through the fields with two people up top and there are, they're hanging their ropes and tying knots. And then below we have a ground crew and they follow us in the tractor and they have a little tool. It's a clip setting tool that sets a clip that goes over the rope and gets pushed into the ground about six or seven inches. And then that clip gets as it wants to pull up, spreads out in the soil and holds that rope taut uh, and creates a nice stable 
place for the hop to grow up. So that's a huge push at the beginning of the season is getting all those lines strung and clips in the ground. Uh, once that's done, as the plants grow, we'll start, we'll start actually training the hops. So every single hop gets hand trained. So we'll have crews that are just going through the fields in multiple passes and selecting kind of the main best looking uh, shoots to be actually be trained onto the wire. So we train, we train clockwise uh, in the Northern hemisphere. They train uh, counterclockwise in the Southern hemisphere. So those plants will start to go up the wire. So we'll go through a couple passes. Each rope gets four or five, depending on the variety, uh, actually trained onto the string. So then they just grow and they do that uh, from June, July, August, all the way to September. And then we get ready for harvest. During harvest, the whole plant is cut down. So we drive through the field with a big hay trailer behind a tractor. Uh, we have what's called top cutters and bottom cutters. The bottom cutters, obviously, like it sounds, they cut the bottom of the plant close to the ground. Uh, they just cut through the whole stem and the, the, the rope that we use is a coconut fiber, it's compostable. Um, and then they cut the bottom of the plant off completely so they're hanging freely by their top knot at the top of the wire. And then when we drive through, there's top cutters on the back of our harvest rig that are cutting those ropes and the plants fall into a big trailer, into a big hay trailer. And we trailer those up to our picker at the top of the farm. And our picker is named Helga. She's a 1970 German wolf, 170. So uh, German built in 1970. Um, and we, this was our fifth harvest with her last year. It'll be six this time. Basically uh, the hops get fed one by one into a chain system that takes it through the picking wheels. So you feed the bottom of the plant in, it grabs it and it pulls the whole plant. So this 20 foot long, 15, 20 pound plant makes its way through the picking drums. And there's four of them and they're all spinning really quickly. And they have these picking fingers on there. And it basically strips all the plant material off of the central stock bind of these plants. So the bind shoots out the other end, totally clean, nothing on it. And then there's a bunch of separator belts inside of the picking machine with fans and the fans blow the leaf material up. So like I was saying earlier, if the leaves are wet, the fans won't blow the leaf material off. So it doesn't separate efficiently. Um, so as those are now separated, the hops keep trickling down the dribble belts and on uh, through a couple switchbacks and then out the final belt where we have a final cleaning. So we have crew out there that are looking for any stems and leaves that make it through, uh, brown cones, anything that's undesirable for aroma, flavor, looks. Um, we'll pull all that out and then those get if they're going fresh hops, they get literally just put into a bag and handed to a brewer and they go brew with them. Um, if we're doing a production day, which is where we'll actually use our hop kiln on site, uh, we'll fill up the hop kiln uh, with about three to 4,000 pounds of hops wet uh, right out of the field and then dry those uh, for about 10 to 12 hours. And that's kind of the whole process from, from picking to drying. Once those are dried, we actually cure them in a curing room to make sure that they're all kind of an even uh, moisture content. Uh, that's helping for ease of processing into pellets, uh, for consistency, all that stuff. And then they're actually baled. So we have a German baler as well. Uh, and that squishes the hops down into a big compact square uh, that weighs about 125 pounds. 
And then that's kind of the, the final product before pelletization. And there Very are cool. some awesome photos on there on your website and on Instagram. I saw some videos that were really interesting. I was just like, yeah. you were walking through it because it's, it's nice to visualize. So for, for sure. those of you who are listening, definitely check out the pictures. I think it's, um, it's pretty cool to watch all of that happen, but also to see what it looks like because it's hard to picture what it would look like without seeing Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't have, you know, the ability or the luxury of living near a hop growing region. um and being and seeing hops you know growing everywhere like they are in the pacific northwest but having a small farm here is cool and it lends uh it lends that kind of look into the agricultural side of it that's really cool and as nick mentioned we would love to come check it out sometime i know i have not ever seen a hop farm and i don't think nick has either so that would be a pretty sweet experience come out come out end of august um End of August is really when we start to see aroma development. So as those cones go from nothing to burr stage, which are these little, like they look like little spikes coming out where all the hops are going to develop. And then they develop into these big, nice cones. Um, during that time, they're full of water. They're just kind of growing. Um, end of August is where we actually see that water being processed into oil composition. And we start to get the aroma developing. Um, and so that's why we're kind of every day they're changing so rapidly. So, but yeah, end of August, come out, come give us a visit. Maybe we could do a follow-up or something. For sure. Definitely. I'm only in Westbrook, so I'm not far. No, oh, come on. Yeah, you're now. right there. Five minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Uh, we had a blast talking to you. I learned so much. I'm sure Biak did as well. Uh, everyone listening, there's going to be links in the description to your website, Instagram, all that, so they can check out some of those videos, learn more about you. And uh, we look forward to visiting at some point and look forward to talking again in the future. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you guys so much. Cheers. Be sure to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening.